dear listeners, and welcome to Deutsche Grammophon's international podcast series. I'm Sarah Willis, and I'm happy to be podcasting for you with the Yellow Label's star-studded cast of musicians as my guests. Today, we're at the Deutsche Grammophon offices in Berlin, and there is someone sitting opposite me who I have never met before, but have been dying to ever since I saw him playing Bach in a fish factory. Wikinger Olafsson, willkommen. Tack, Sarah. Yes, I'm very well, thank you. Ah, guten Tag. Guten Tag, good, good day to you thank too. Thank you, that's all I can manage. It's really hard. You've Icelandic. done well. Yeah, mm. I practiced with YouTube yesterday. Did you? Yeah, because well I just thought, I love languages. And researching you, I thought, gosh, I know nothing about Icelandic languages. Because when we go there, everybody speaks English. Yeah, well... You and I, we used to speak the same language, you know, some 500 years ago. A long time ago, before it all got very northern and Nordic. and uh, Yeah, you know, I had a roommate at Juilliard who was a drama major, and he was doing all the, all the Shakespeare, and so many of the words that he was looking up, they were practically Icelandic. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, Old Norse, the Old English, you know, it, it was all one. There's a lot of videos, actually, that I found about how to pronounce all this Icelandic names and places and it's all these old the things they use in Just in take your time. Films. It's like with music. If you have a super difficult phrase, take your time. You have more time than you think. Those words, when people are trying to say, like, the glacier that stopped the whole world from traveling, good. I was going to impress part, you with that. Part of the problem is that they, they get so nervous. It's like <laughs> you're playing a phrase and you just sort of, like, run ahead of yourself. <laughs> you have more time than you think. That's very good advice. Welcome, anyway. I'm so happy to meet you at last. A huge fan for years. Oh, stop and, it. Uh, ah. and um, in between us, for our podcast audiences, we have Vikingo's wonderful new album, Debussy and Rameau, and it's in a very nice horn. It's My French horn is in between us, and it's acting very beautifully as an album stand. It could be like industrial design, like your new photo frame is a French horn. Absolutely, it's, actually. It's, it's what it's a good up. idea. Yeah. And when I'm bored of you, I'll just, I'll just change you out with the next one. Exactly. I mean, I have photo frames, but I certainly can't play them. <laughs> this is a huge improvement. It is, isn't it? Anyway, congratulations on the new album. I know you are spending a lot of time today. We're here in the Deutsche Grammophone offices, but you're being shunted all across Berlin. You've just come from right on the other side of town. It's funny. I'm doing, I think, eight or nine. I can't even count any more different interviews today. This is and going to be your favorite, I promise. I, I already is. <laughs> but, 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 but basically, you know, when, you, when you're being asked sort of similar questions and then you find yourself, you know, giving similar answers and then you start to feel like a charlatan because you're just saying the same thing again and again and again, trying to find variation, trying to find the freshness. Because also, if you say something, just like when you play music, if you play music and you play it the third constant in a row, or fourth or fifth or sixth, you know, it's so hard to find the freshness of the first. It's like a recording. The first take tends to be the best. But something, I think it was Christoph Eschenbach who said, the best thing about music is it, of course, is never the same because every minute you're already a minute older and wiser. Yeah, he said it. I mean, it's like you'd kind of step twice into, into the same river. It was said 2,000 years before him even. But it's so true. It is so true, but it doesn't change, change the fact that, that in a way, when you're saying, yeah, I chose Debussy and Rameau for this album because of, you know, yeah, I, I, have to, I have to be very disciplined and we have to find new ways of thinking about it. So let's do that right now. Let's do that right now and make this the one that everyone is going to run to. Do you do it on stage as well? Do you consciously think, okay, what can I do differently or does it just pour out of you? 
I do sometimes have to consciously think that I want to do something differently, especially if I'm doing it for the seventh concert in like eight days. You, you do sometimes have to do that. But luckily, uh, life is so anyway unstable and, and pianos are... You're talking to a horn player. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and pianos also, I mean, they're so different and the acoustics and we have to adapt anyway so much on, on stage. I mean, I think it would be a completely different story if I had, if I was a violinist, had my guaranary or something like that with me. Yeah, um, we, I travel with my instrument. You have a yeah. different one wherever you go. Unfortunately, I mean, if luxurious position would be to have uh, my chosen technician, you know, with me. That's so. That sometimes some happens. Some people do travel. That sometimes Are you happens. not famous enough yet? <laughs> Rich enough? It's very. It's a very sensitive issue, of course. Oh, sorry. No, sometimes. I mean, sometimes you can have like you know tours organized where you actually have someone like Thomas Hipps from the Philharmonie or Michel Branches from the Concertgebouw. This is dream, mm. but that's not you know that's not life you know every day. Uh, so so yeah, I guess I guess. But anyway, I think that music anyway is, is 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 the music I choose to play is in a way so multifaceted that it's in a way hard to repeat yourself too much. If you play Bach like 60-minute or 80-minute box sets, you know. What kind of person are you if you're actually playing it the same from day to day? I mean, you're certainly not a very good musician. Of course. But the thing is about an album is that it's different from live because live you can play something and think, oh, I'll play that differently tomorrow. An album, recording an album, you're, I mean, I'm, I'm a horn player, so I'm always with other people. You're alone in a studio yeah. and you are putting down notes that are going to stay there forever. Thank you for reminding me. It's really scary, but it's the same when you're composing. You know, I've done some composing, but also when I read like about Debussy on that album, he was agonizing over submitting pieces for publication. Sometimes we think of Debussy and we think, oh, it's just this incredible inspiration. He just sort of like had this kind of freedom inside and this fantasy and can just stay in sonority and find endless different colors, shades of blue, let's say. But it wasn't like that. I mean, he would actually delay and delay and delay giving his pieces for final publication because he wouldn't know if the silence was supposed to be a quarter note, an eighth note, or whether that bar should be slurred or whether it should have, you know. I mean, there are infinite ways. But I think with the recording, you have to, it, it's a very sort of humbling experience. You have to sort of accept, first, first of all, yourself, but also the fact that music is bigger than, you know, any one performance. You know, we have this idea in ourselves that, you know, there's one best thing and, and we are certainly not there, but we are striving for it. But then it turns out it's not true. Even if you do the perfect recording, it's not perfect, you know, unless it's there for one day and then tomorrow you think differently. Right now with this, I recorded it in August, so it's now six months. So I'm a little weird. It's like when I was just done with it, I was very happy with it. And now I'm in this place when I listen to it and I played it in a few concerts and I just do it very differently. And then, you know, you come back a year later and you might again see it's actually wonderful. And then two years you think, oh, it's actually overrated. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like the Icelandic weather. It's like constantly changing, you know. Why is it that Iceland produces such good musicians? Is it because of the weather? <laughs> Maybe we stay indoors and like <laughs> sing songs. No, I think actually like it's coincidental somewhat. Maybe we are lucky because right now we are in a point of time where it's quite nice not to have the burden of history too much you know, bearing on your shoulders. I think we have an interesting culture, super intense, but at the same time, it's very young. And so so classical music, I mean, it goes back only to the late 19th century, or early 20th, really. And then people were writing like quasi Schumann or Greek pieces still. And Schoenberg was like breaking down tonal- tonality. And, and They were still were romantic. Oh, they were still yeah. like in, in like Robert Schumann early pieces, you know. So it's very interesting, you know. But, but then in the last few years, you know, we've had an explosion of, of music's different styles, different artists. And there's no way of explaining it, but maybe the weather is, is as good as any other well, the explanation. The food, maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe it's like 
It's just like a pretty difficult place to be in. I mean, it's the most wonderful place on earth. Well, but we it's, loved it's, it. We, we went to play at the concert. It's like, it's so moody, yeah. you know, the country, like the, the, the weather, the conditions, everything is so up and down. And because we have such a small economy and we have our own currency, it's like the swings are crazy. And like everything is just like in constant state of like flux. I mean, it's just like there's no stability there. I feel like it's like, you know, like Italy of the north or something. Like, it's like <laughs> there's never a moment of calm somehow. Well, uh, they certainly produce some amazing musicians. Uh, in, in, and that's I think it. instability is good. Maybe in, instability is the key. For, for artists. For art. Think. I mean, think about it. I mean, some of the greatest art has always been created in sort of instable circumstances. Too much prosperity and too much stability can kill art quite easily. You know, it kills ideas. You know, it kills the need to, 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 to break away and to change things. Yeah. On, on, your, on your album, Debussy Nermo, you say this is a, like a dialogue between the two, two composers and it would be great if you didn't even notice that you were playing Rameau or Debussy. If you got into that mix and the three of you were in a bar, mm. what would that conversation be like, do you think? Because actually in your program notes, you called Rameau the bad boy of Baroque and Debussy <laughs> was this sort of tortured impressionist. He didn't really like that word impressionist, did he? You, or you don't like that word really impressionist. Nobody likes it. So what would, you, what would you put yourself in the mix with these two? Oh, wow. I mean, with two Frenchmen like that in a bar, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it would be very interesting. They would probably be, you know, insulting each other and having a wonderful debate about something. I would probably just sort of observe it and drink a little more. <laughs> Honestly, no, but, but, but I think, you know, what these two guys have in common are quite a few things. They were sort of relentlessly independent and individual thinkers you know they, they always had to find their way they wouldn't just accept other people's ways so so for instance they both arrived into a scene you know of their day that their thought was quite tired so when Debussy was a young man he was totally not buying the Camille Saint-Saëns scene he wasn't buying the foray way he wasn't buying what César Franck was doing he didn't like any of those things uh, he and you know Chausson was maybe the closest but he really had to reinvent things and there was a year in Debussy's life in the 1880s when he was in his 20s when he actually didn't compose for a whole year because he felt everything coming from his pen was like Wagnerian so he, because Wagner was then like the the god of music. And, and, and so he always had to find his own way and he would never do things sort of automatically. He would question everything. He would question the meaning of every single piece, which is why, I mean, he really made himself invent the wheel all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Very many different kinds of wheels. <laughs> but Rameau, on the other hand, you know, he sort of comes from the provinces. He's almost like self-taught. And, you know, he's in the age of enlightenment. You know, he was called the Newton of harmony because he really sort of invented this way of thinking about harmony, you know, really thinking about harmony as we perceive it today. He's people didn't quite accept it, did they, harmony. in those days? They were, they, he was more of a, he was considered more, a little bit of a rebel. I think so. And I think great art doesn't connect people, it divides people. Oh. Mm, I think so. I think if it's really great art, it divides people, which is why I hope I don't only get positive reviews for this. Please also bring in the negative ones, because we need that. We need a discussion about things, you know, we need, people need to take a stance. And, and that's maybe something that we miss from today's you know, classical music and, and, and society in general. But those days, it was really a heated debate, you know. So if you put those two guys in a bar, certainly I'll just be the bartender. I'm just going to listen to what they have to say and bring them some interesting drinks, you know. <laughs> Ramo, so Simon Rattle, my ex-boss, we did Ramo with him, the, the, the wonderful orchestral pieces, and he said Ramo was a rock star in his day for these rhythms and for these unusual percussion effects that he would bring in there you know there's even that, those chains and and all, yeah. the, all the crazy things i think he's giving way too much credit to rock and the rock stars <laughs> because i know some rock stars and they're not this cool 
to be honest with you. I think this idea of saying that everything is rock and roll and rock star and classical music is pretty lame, actually. I think not, nothing against Sir Simon. I'm a huge fan of his. But really, I think this notion, I don't find that that, that kind of amazing life in, in much rock. Of course, you can say some exceptions for sure. But I'd say he was his own different kind of a star in, it, in his own kind of firmament. You know, it, it's really music of the future. You can look to Ramo just like you look at, at uh, you know, at, at the stars to find which direction you're going in. I do find that. And I find that the keyboard music in particular, which is almost never played or recorded on the, on the modern piano, the grand piano, it's really, you know, up there with Johann Sebastian Bach. I prefer it to even the, the suites of Handel or the sonatas of Scarlatti. And I don't say that lightly because I do love those pieces. But what Ramo has done in those pieces is, is really, you know, it's, it's this kind of Baroque and very specific French Rameau Baroque way of writing for piano, but really with the kind of spirit of what was to come in the, really in the Romantic era. And he gives those pieces these kind of incredibly expressive titles, Dialogue of the Birds. It's really program you know. music, you know? Oh, La Poule, uh, yeah, Cyclops, chicken. you know. Yeah, it's like, the hand. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, the Cyclops and, and it's, I mean, these titles, they're just like, they're just like poems, yeah. like one-line poems. Yeah. And, and so in a way, yes, he's way ahead of his time in, in many ways. And also with keyboard writing, think about the first drama piece on this album is Le Rappel des Oiseaux, or Dialogue of the Birds, where you certainly have one bird in the right hand and another one in the left hand, they do have a dialogue. It was a bit messian almost, I, it's I incredible, thought. It's <laughs> yeah. incredible. Messian takes a lot from Rameau. Yeah. And, and, and it starts with, you know, just an E minor chord, and it just stays in that chord for quite a long time. And then it just changes it just by one note or two notes, but, but still, and then stays in that sonority, and the birds are just in there, and, you just, and they're just sort of sitting there t- quietly on the branch together, having a little dialogue. And then they fly off, and you see all the landscapes, and you see the other creatures of the forest and, and wherever they go in transit. But, I mean, this kind of music can do this with Rameau so early in the, in the Baroque. I mean, it was very unusual for, that, for those days, because most people were just writing symphonies, movement one, two, three, or whatever, or dances, yeah. or, or, or songs, but, but the, so the words would do the work. But in his music, it's so descriptive, it's really quite extraordinary. And I must say, listening to the album, I've rediscovered it, because, mm. you know, unfortunately there are no Rameau. Well, Rameau wrote some very difficult horn parts, but never any solo pieces. Oh, we've, we've sweated on stage with some of his horn parts, oh yeah. goodness. But the fact that this descriptive writing, you know, this program music it's writing, theater. yeah, it really is. I think Dupuis also, in much of his piano music, is really like a theater director almost. He's just like painting these scenes, or, or a painter, of course, in sound. But he's doing the directing these scenes, and so in a way, the way this album is set up is is really like like a composition, like like almost like an opera, or like a dialogue, mm-hmm. the opera for two. Two players, you know, the two composers having a dialogue, one listening to another and then adding something to the conversation, furthering it. But it opens with an overture, La Damoiselle Elue, which is originally, originally, yeah, the cantata from the 1880s. Debussy was a young man, and I thought his side, the old side of him, because he was also very much a man of the past as well as a man of the future. He was not only interested in Impressionism and these kind of like, that's very simplistic, you know. He loved Japanese prints. He loved the pre-Raphaelite painters. He was obsessed with the past. And it starts with this kind of archaic prelude that I've taken from his own transcription for solo piano much later in his life, which shows how much he loved this piece still. And then, you know, it's like the curtains are drawn, and then, you know, at the end of the prelude, and I've changed the ending to be like in the original orchestral piece where the chorus sort of enters instead of the piano ending that he gave it. So this is complete uncertainty. And uh, in my mind, the curtains are sort of, you know, removed uh, to the side 
and what appears in the scene is not Debussy but Rameau. And really you have like a, yeah, like a like a like a village, yeah. like a like yeah. a French village in the 18th century, mm. like somewhere in Normandy or something. Like it's really like a village, and you have these scenes, and you have the tamperans, you have the foxy music, foxy elements. You have the village maiden that I like to play, like she's like a totally. Like she, she, she's a, she's a teaser. She's a flirt. Yeah. She, 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 she's not one who gets you know her her heart broken. She's a heartbreaker. Like she's not the victim. Like she's very often played in a very sort of sad way. Like she's she, we should feel bad for her. I don't think so. She's much more like the young Mott Archer. She's just like this incredible, like incredible charisma. Like everyone just looks at her and and, and they can't they can't just grasp her. You know, uh, she's an enigma really. And then it goes, you know, after the E minor suite finishes with these two jigs, which are like like Schubert almost going from minor to major. And really the E minor version is really like Eine Krähe from Winterreise. It's just like incredible, it's incredible, like prophetic music. Then all of a sudden we find ourselves in another kind of village or another kind of garden, you know, uh, rain in the garden of yeah. Debussy from Estamps. And from there we go on and we've, I specifically chose pieces to reflect Debussy and his deep roots in, in the French Baroque yeah. and to show kind of the more futuristic, perhaps, And you finish with his homage, which is the perfect piece, to, the, the homage to, to Rameau. Yeah, what do you think about the homage? Because it's an interesting piece. Do you find similarities I, to be honest, between Rameau and To be honest, it's, uh, on paper, it's a great finish, but listening to it, I was like, okay, what is he actually doing from Rameau? I, my, first listen was, my first listen through was actually, I was thinking, okay, maybe I'm missing something here. I didn't quite get it. It's amazing. I think it's... Oh, so I'm, I'm, am, I, am I useless as a musician? I felt really disappointed in myself. Yeah, you're that I fired. Did, <laughs> that I didn't quite get it. You're no longer part of the Berlin Philharmonic. <laughs> but I knew, I knew that I was going to come and talk to you about it today. So will you please tell me what I... Actually, what we, you have nailed it. Because the, the similarities are not obvious. But wouldn't it also have been so cliché to write homage a Rameau and of try to do like a Rameau Sarabande? Mm. Of course, the piece is kind of a Sarabande. But it's a very spacious Sarabande. And it's full of these kind of like stable, stable like bass sonorities that he then builds these, I would allow myself to say, very nostalgic music around. Mm. It's certainly reflective, this homage mm. Rameau. And it's sort of like looking through the foggy fogginess of time. And I, I think it's so beautiful because I've thought about this piece so much and I love it, like, I love it to, uh, to death, really. I, I really love this music. I think it's one of Debussy's greatest pieces. But again, where is Rameau in it? I think it's the beautiful thing is that if you really respect someone and if someone has really been your teacher, you don't sound like your teacher. Yeah, you don't have to you, copy. You, you are yourself. And, and that's the greatest thing you can do for your teacher or someone that your mentor. And Debussy loved Rameau and he studied him so detailed, in such a detail. So, so in a way, what he's done there is giving him this kind of bow, you know, without... Try, trying to pretend to be a mini Rameau, and that's beautiful. I'm so glad that you helped me with that. Thank you. You can feel free to listen to it again without <laughs> finding will. what exactly... I certainly will. I don't think there is any... There's no... As far as I'm concerned, there's no citation, there's no quotation, there's no little place in it's there. It's a nod. It's just it's a nod. It's a nod. Yeah. It's just a fantasy. Yeah. And if you go back to the middle, I have another question from a horn player. The Arts and the Hours, which had a terribly complicated full name. It was The Arrival of the Muses, Saviors, Saisons, and Hours and the Arts. That's what it was originally called. Well, it's all about the arrival or to the scene of, of, of something related to the arts or to time yeah. and time's passing. In the credits, it says you've arranged it. Now, can you explain that to me and to people that maybe don't quite understand what it means yeah. to be playing a piece by Rameau on the modern-day piano? Yeah, I mean, with this piece, I, I arranged it because I think it's one of the most beautiful pieces from the Baroque era, I mean, of all music. It's incredible. It could almost have been written the kind of 
harmonies and the, and the counterpoint and dissonance you have in there and cross suspensions could almost have been written by Gustav Mahler. You know, it's, it's so futuristic, it's so timeless. You, and he was 80 years old when he wrote it. So he became a very old man, especially for that time, you know, 80, and he died when he was 81. It's his last opera, Le Boreat. And I just thought, you know, I sometimes conduct like Mozart concertos from the piano, but I'm not as good as Sir Simon Rattle or something like that. So, so in a way, I'm not going to be conducting this piece, but I do envy the conductors who do. Mm-hmm. So I found a way of sort of getting rid of my envy, just being able to play it on the piano. And when you do a transcription like that, you know, taking something original like for string orchestra or for a bigger orchestra and then make, making it in for the piano medium, it's very important that you do so uh, from a position of strength, that you think that you actually can make something new out of it because I'm not interested in such certainly only imitating what has been done because then you should just stay with the original. And I thought with this choice, I imagined it could be just get new sonority, new life on the piano. The original is so beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of the Baroque period, you know. But really, I and I am jealous of the conductors who get to conduct it. I, you know, I, I really do. But now I don't need to be jealous anymore because I can just you play can it. play it. They're jealous of you. <laughs> but it's like the music. I mean, what what did he do in this piece? It's it's Le Boreat. It's his last opera. He was eighty years old. He had finally gotten some fame and some money actually but it didn't change anything about his very modest way of living and being he writes this incredible music that could just as well have been written by Gustav Mahler 120 years later I mean this kind of mm-hmm. suspensions these harmonies this, this sort of timeless quality it's it's I think it's unbelievable quality of music so I've, I've put this there and called it the arts and the hours you know for the gods at Spotify and Apple Music suddenly they don't have but, to write out the entire title. but also for myself yeah because it's in, I, I, I thought about it, you know, and there's this timeless and this kind of quality and this tranquility and acceptance in this piece, very much an acceptance. And I think, I feel like it was inspired, the arts and the hours, well, of course, it's in the original title, but it's also sort of inspired by Ars Longa Vida Brevis. You know, life is short, art is long, he's at the end of his life. And I mean, in a way, this whole album is about the, you know, the elusiveness of time and, and you know, whether two composers like those can be kind of like musical brothers or, or even soulmates, you know, if even if 180 years separate them. I certainly know that Debussy felt that way. We, we have a harder time knowing what Rameau felt about Debussy, of course. He would have loved him. I think so. But you never know with two Frenchmen. <laughs> I also wanted to congratulate you on the video because I absolutely loved it. It was so touching. I literally watched it three times. I watched it three times to make sure I got the three characters exactly right. Oh, the new video, right. the, the new video, right. The fish video I loved. For the, any any listeners who don't know, Vikingo's fish video, please look it up. <laughs> it is beautiful. This this face, this smile of the fish. I you know, Well, it's not really a smile. I guess he was... He was dead, but, it's, it, your but interpretation. It's, it's beautiful. I thought the fish was smiling and saying, I think you know, he can smile in posterity. Yeah, yeah, of course. He probably, that's his, <laughs> his death mask. But and people who haven't seen it will not know what, what on earth we're talking about. But if you haven't heard it, if you haven't seen it, go and look it up. But the music video to accompany this piece is also very, very beautiful. You work with the same director. Yeah. And he has a very peaceful, beautiful outlook on the world somehow. I, I, just, yeah. I just like what he did with the, with the music as well. It's really about... This video is about following your passion, following your heart. It's about sort of, it's in two, two, there are sort of like two elements, or I should say four elements, but it's me playing this music in the home of Haldor Luxness. It's a mid-century classic house, famous house. Haldor Luxness was Iceland's only Nobel Prize winning uh, author, a great, great, great author. And he passed away in 1998, and his house is still 
exactly the way it was. His typewriters, their time stand still. So it felt perfect for the arts and the hours and, and the, the arts longer vita brevis. Mm-hmm. But then we have, for every verse, we have a different character. We have a little visit, a little counterpoint, visual counterpoint to the music. And we have three characters appearing who have such different passions. But you see this kind of gathering over a long period of time of these things that they love and they really, you know, are, are closest to their hearts. I'm not going to say what those objects are, and this is going to be very surprising to some. But um, Beautiful. But I thought it was, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, yeah, it's really about sort of quiet passion. I love that about you that you you go in these diff- to these different uh, you know directions your your remix you know you said you have nothing against remixes if they're good and then you bring out a, a Bach remix and then here this music video with a different message it's it's just not like the hey look at me this is my new album but with a story well that's been done so many times and it's I think really I mean when you do an album like that I mean, you should try to find a way for creativity not only to be in the way you play the music and what you select, but rather in also the visuals, the text you should write yourself, for sure, about the music and the time you spend with it. Everything is translated then into into something else. And I think with the videos, yeah, I think classical music videos can be awful. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, if you burn for the music and you want to say something new with the music, you should also want to say something new with the video, which means not just going into a nice little palace and putting on a suit and you know, combing your hair and then playing something for your for your mother. You know, you should do something else. Or your grandmother. Here, here. Your mother will love your new video, I think. Don't we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> will she let you know? She's very honest, yeah. Will she let you know if well, she I don't, want, I don't want everybody to love everything, honestly. I think people should make up their own minds, and I think we need that more. Yeah. I think it's totally fine to accept that not everything is equal in music. We don't have to say that, let's say, Beethoven, we have the Beethoven era. So everyone is doing these complete editions, including my beloved Deutsche Grammophone. But it doesn't mean that I like all the Beethoven piano sonatas. I actually don't. I think they're very uneven in quality, and some people in Vienna will shoot me for saying this, you know. But You're it's fine to say that. I think so, and it's, it's like it's the same. I, I don't, I don't buy all the Bruckner symphonies at all. You know, some of them I absolutely love, but in other words, I, I can't stand. Uh, and, that's and, and, music. And I think that's why it's so individual. We think. I think we need people to be more, more honest and more free about making up their own minds and taking sort of being more a little bit like Ramon and Debussy, finding what speaks to them. And so, in a way, I've done videos that speak to me. But I realize they might not speak to other people. But, but that's the way with, with everything. Your son loves what you do, though. Does he sit under the piano when you practice? He does. And he actually, he's already given me like a, a fugue theme that, that, that I should probably compose to. He's 11 months old, so maybe I'm exaggerating. <laughs> Can you sing but it for played, me? Um, I'm not going to sing it to you, but, <laughs> but it's actually, I played on the horn. Uh, but it's actually, it's, it's, it's a four-note motif, you know, F, D, E, E flat, which sounds very like, and he played it like like that with his fingers, like just like it's so beautiful. Uh, and then I thought we don't need the B A C H Bach theme anymore. We can just go with you know F D E E flat <laughs> theme of my son. I'm trying to figure out what he's trying to tell me. It must be some cryptic message mm. in there. Yes, there must be. Okay, well I'm expecting the symphony, your son's symphony, using like instead of D S C H or something like that. Like so that that's your new challenge. Yeah, now I sound like an insane parent, like <laughs> trying to make an insane wunderkind of my son. I wonder if your son might like to play the horn when he grows up, because I, I saw a picture of him, he's got great set of chops. 
Mm. Yeah, he really does. You mean just the lips? Yeah, just the yeah, lips. The... He looked like he's looking in like this in the camera, and I thought, yeah, there oh, we go. Oh, super. Yeah. I never thought of that. I'll have to I come only by. think about the fingers, and there he's actually got some good fingers. No, no, I see the I see the potential oh. here. And we but love... it's such a difficult life to be a horn player. Tell me about it. With the horn, you never know if what you blow in is going to come out. It's true. It's a really hard... I'm not sure if I wish that on him. <laughs> well, I don't wish that on him, but I wish that on you right now because to, <laughs> to end the Deutsche Grammophon no, International Podcasts, I like to challenge whoever I've interviewed to getting a note on the horn. Now, you've been looking very suspiciously at, this, at my horn <laughs> sitting here between us for the whole podcast. <laughs> I would love to challenge you to playing it. Is your horn um, insured? My horn is insured. We're going to take your... your. Oh, I'd rather have it there. Then I feel a sense okay, of security. Okay, no, that's good. Well, we'll put it back in here then. <laughs> then we're going to put that here. Yeah, it's not going to affect anything. Go. And this is my mouthpiece. So just for the listeners so to know what, what's about to happen. That would be a sort of normal warm-up on the horn. It's I've, freezing cold. You know, I've never played a single note on the horn. You've never played a single note like, on the horn? not one. Even ah. if one of my very best friends is, is the principal horn player of Iceland Symphony, Stefan Jan. Stefan, yeah. I like... Yeah, I actually find my heart is beating a little faster now. Well, I'm glad because the horn makes the horn should make your heart. Clap. And in these days oh, of God. staying healthy, I have a what sterilized mouth. What if there is no mouth. sound? It's like playing the piano and it's just muted. You know, there probably is no sound when I play it. Here is a sterilized mouthpiece that's going sterilized. in the horn. I'm just making sure the horn, I don't know if you can hear that on the... We're blowing air through the horn and wiggling the valves. Now a sterilized mouthpiece is... Now, anybody right. can get a note on the horn. All you have to do is put your lips together and mm. pretend you're spitting something off your lips. It goes, and you pull the tongue back. Okay. With a vibration. Try that. God. Spit. That's it. That's it. But a little bit longer, a little bit... Yeah, that's exactly it. I can hear everybody at home listening to this podcast in front of their Awful. thing going... It's basically... Kids can always do it because you say kids spit off what you have on the end of your tongue and they go... <laughs> There you go. That's all you have to do. But I think there's no sound coming. Well, we'll see. The worse you are, the more we love you. Mm. So here we go. Vikingur. Am I pronouncing your name right? Vikingur. Vikingur. Ready? Here we go. You're a natural talent. <laughs> but what if we? I, I want to do a scale. Bravo. Okay. But do I have it. to do it with my mouth and with these three. And with the and with the valves. That's right. You can no. do it. You can do a natural harmonic and just go up and down. Yeah, okay, this is kind of fun. Yeah, it's kind of fun. You see. <laughs> and the thing is with the podcast is once I give them the horn, dear listeners, they never want to stop. So we're going to let Vikingur play Amazing. us out. He will not stop here. He's going to carry on. Yeah, bravo! Sounds so beautifully in the Berlin Philharmonic. <laughs> And here I am Thank with you. that same horn. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for this beautiful Debussy Remo album. <laughs> I sound like a sick elephant. Yes, well, it can only get better. Thank you so much Thanks, for joining Sarah. us. Thanks, Sarah.